You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we are going to speak about American infrastructure and election security. In 2016, there were vulnerabilities in the U.S. election system that were laid bare. And as we head toward the 2020 presidential election and face the complications brought on by COVID, this has posed different threats about how Americans vote. We want to get a report on the progress related to election integrity, about ongoing threats from a government official who's charged with protecting the American voting and protecting our infrastructure. My guest today is Director Christopher Krebs, the first and current Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the Department of Homeland Security. Director Krebs oversees efforts to defend civilian networks, secure federal facilities, and work with stakeholders to secure the country's cyber and physical infrastructure. Director Krebs, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Ann. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, we were originally um, scheduled to have this conversation in early April, and um, for our listeners, we're actually recording this in early June instead, because a whole lot of things have happened um, between early April and early June. Some of the state primaries have come and gone. We've had the spread of coronavirus that's introduced into a national conversation, things related about how Americans vote, you know, how how do we leverage a mail-in ballots? What is the security around those? You know, I live in the uh, the state of Washington, where we, where we vote exclusively by mail-in ballots. Um, so it's it's an interesting topic. Um, there's also a lot of um, d- debates, you know, and you're that you're seeing how we need to reimagine um, the election system, which which is, as you know, primarily run by the states, and how you provide them guidance on securing the infrastructure um, to prevent any any type of you know hack or or any type of fraud. So. Can you talk, give us your perspective on your expectations of this year's election and how that may have changed over the past few months? Yeah, uh, you know, between um, just the overall understanding and awareness of the threat environment with COVID and all that comes along with that, there's no question that this is going to be not just the highest profile election in at least my lifetime, but also one of the more challenging uh, elections. Uh, what we're working, what, we're, what we've been doing, and really this is, this, as I think back, it, it really started kind of popping up right around the RSA conference. Um, we had been talking to state and local election officials about introducing uh, personal protective equipment, sanitation, sanitization measures, and, you know, cleaning touch screens and things like that, uh, not reusing pins, face masks, all, all that good stuff. Uh, and it really just kind of took, took on a completely different um uh, complexity when uh, the the pandemic really spun up and folks started going more to a telework and, and more importantly social distancing process and and we did see a number of states start moving to uh, almost absentee ballot by default or mail-in ballot by, by default you know prior to COVID 42 states had absentee ballot measures kind of no excuse um, you could just request one and you'd get it um, and we've since seen many more states take up that approach. But that said, there are still options even in uh, states like California, um, 
uh, where you can vote in person. So what we've been working with our partners in, in state and local election uh, land was making was bringing CDC into the conversation, providing them guidance on how to disinfect and, and protect a, uh, uh, a voting place. Um, giving advice on if you do make this shift to mail-in ba ballots, you know, and you bring in new infrastructure and equipment, here are the cybersecurity considerations. Uh, and then also the most important thing really is is just getting good information out there to the voter because things change and uh, you've got to be able to communicate clearly and effectively what those changes are. Uh, with this past Tuesday, uh, Super June's Day, which I'm cringing as I say that, but uh, <laughs> a number of primaries had shifted. Uh, and for the most part, things went just fine. Um, Arizona, Iowa, uh, Pennsylvania instituted some new measures. There were some delays in Washington, D.C., uh, but I think that was more based on uh, fewer poll workers and, and fewer voting centers. But for the most part, you know, the vote most go on and the vote did go on. I know there's been not just on the topic of mail-in ballots, but also just um, some momentum to, to requiring backup uh, paper ballots. I know that um, the Oregon Senator uh, Ron Wyden has a bill that would ban internet Wi-Fi and cellular collections for voting machines, but it also gives the Department of Homeland Security the authority to set minimum cybersecurity standards for voting machines, databases, election reporting websites. What are your thoughts on, you know, what is the right amount of technology and how do we balance it to make sure that everyone feels that the voting tallying process is legitimate? So, you know, any way you cut it, um, the way that we work as an agency at CISA is, you know, we have to take our customers, our stakeholders, our partners as they come to us. Um, so if a state comes and says, you know, they've got a certain technology, I can't say to them, no, you know, because you use that, I'm not going to work with you. Again, we take them like we see see them. We can't provide advice. Um, you know, there have been a number of devices uh, that have modems enabled for uh, transmitting um, unofficial results, and, and that's in some of the, the Midwest states. Um, and, and elsewhere. And, and we have said, you know, to the extent you can, you want to disable or remove those modems. Uh, but again, it, it's unofficial results and they have other ways of transmitting the official results. Um, so technology, you know, I, I, what, what we're seeing is election officials introduce technology to make the voting process easier, uh, to make it more seamless. Uh, but obviously risks come with that. And just like everywhere else, you know, the, the first priority really is, a, is effectiveness rather than security. So we're coming in behind that and providing them the, the right security guidance. Um, what's important, though, on the, the paper ballot backup that you mentioned, really the concept that we're striving for is auditability, where you've got the receipts. You can go back and check the tapes. Key tenet of IT security in general is auditability, being able to go and look at the logs, for instance. Same thing applies here. We want to be able to go, if there's any sort of hiccup or, or um, abnormality or anomaly, we want to go back and say, okay, let's go back to zero and build it back up. Um, so in 2016, I think it was about 80 to 82% of votes cast had a paper ballot backup associated with it. We were on track for uh, about 92% um, voting with uh, a paper ballot backup or some paper record associated with 20 um, I'm not sure if we're going to meet that this time around just because uh, some states kind of slowed down some of their technology refreshes and introducing new equipment um, because they, you know, they already had to take certain COVID measures. And again, trying to reduce complexity as, as, most, as best they can um, had, had maybe hit pause on introducing new equipment. But at the same time, we're seeing other states, like I said, go to mail-in or absentee ballots. So we don't have good numbers or metrics right now on what that shift is, 
But I think, you know, still, we have made significant progress since 2016 on modernizing and update, updating the systems that support um, uh, election administration. Now, that's not to say that there's not work, more work to do, because, as you know, there is always work to do. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in this one for the long haul. Nothing is unhackable, um, but the comp I think for this, it's it's the public confidence level. How do you think? Well, it, about and I'm sorry, Ann, if I could jump in, you're you're yeah. absolutely right, and that's been kind of our credo all along. It's not 100% security; it's resilient. So even if you do get popped, you can roll it back and and understand what the the actual underlying data is to get to that accurate vote count. So that's why, again, the importance of paper ballot backups, auditability. And again, you know, you got the receipts. Go check the receipts. And you know, it's refreshing to hear you talk in that language because that's how our customers um, outside of government talk about it, right? They say we are going to have an event. The question is, how quickly can we get critical business systems back online, and how quickly can we react, right, and understand what happened? It's not a matter of you know we want to prevent it, but you know let's assume it happens. So that operational resilience. Is, is the language we hear more and more companies using on a global basis. Yep. Um, how do you think, you know, Microsoft and I know other companies, but I'll, you know, speak specifically to Microsoft. We have, you know, our election guard and we have in beta right now and we have our account guard for for um, for all, you know, all politicians, all, all uh, campaigns. How do you think about those partnerships um, with the private sector as far as the the initiatives they're launching right now? So I, um, you know, I think probably from, I don't want to say day one, because God knows at this point, I don't know, even know when day one was. Um, but but early on in our election security efforts, we were pretty clear in saying that this is not a government's going to solve the problem. Uh, this is going to have to be a whole of society, whole of nation approach. And I need private, the private sector to step up uh, and kind of look beyond the profit in the next quarter um, to, to be able to help us protect the elections. And so what we're seeing is just like the account guard, um, uh, approach of you know, Google, um, CrowdStrike, Fire, a bunch of other organizations have really stepped up. AWS have stepped up and helped us um, with their uh, their with their products. But the really interesting thing is, is for years, for years we've been banging on this need for public-private sector partnership, but in a vacuum, without a specific objective. It's just like hey, let's just share information and get better cybers out there. And it, because you didn't have a, a, um, a near-term objective or something to shoot at, uh, it, it didn't really take off. But I think with the elections, with everybody understanding what's at stake here, and that's, that's democracy, um, this constitutional republic, this American experiment, we've gotten people focused on one thing. And that has really uh, sharpened the partnerships that sharpen the offerings from companies and that sharpen the ability of government to work with industry. So what I'm trying to do is take this um, understanding of, of how to be effective government and industry together and see if we can't build a framework, a model, and then apply it to other things. I think we have found that. I think with the COVID response, some of the things that immediately stood up like the Cyber Threat Intelligence League and the Cyber Threat Coalition, these organizations that are ad hoc trust groups, but folding in government and industry, and sometimes it's in their spare time, fine, but still, you know, it's a we have a near-term objective, their target to shoot at, um, and they've been incredibly effective. So again, 
how do we take that forward? How do we protect the next big thing? And that's going to be the hardest part of all this. But I feel pretty good about where we are, government and industry, going into the 2020 election uh, in terms of our um, ability to work together. That's really great to hear. Um, I want to transition from, since I have you, I, I want to take advantage of that and talk about some other topics I know you're, that you're responsible for and are near and dear to your heart. So I'm going to transition from the topic of election security. But before I do that, I need to ask a question. Um, at the RSA conference, which, by the way, feels like it was years ago, but at the end of February, um, you and your co-presenter had on these wonderful tomato red pants. Can you, <laughs> can you, can you talk about that just for a minute? TL, yeah, TLP red pants. Um, so that that actually that was uh, V2 of TLP red pants, and that's when I actually had a partner in crime. Uh, but earlier in the year, um, which again seems like a decade ago, uh, I was down in Miami at, at S4 at Dale Peterson's uh, Industrial Control Systems focused conference. A great, great event down in Miami Beach. Uh, it had been just you know cold as you know what up here in DC. And I was going down to Miami. I was like, you know what? I'm not wearing a suit. I I just try not to wear suits as much as I can anyway. So I had, in, you know, Bryce and Bort from Sky um, uh, and I were doing this uh, control systems focused uh, event. We were, we were really launching the ICS Village um, that we were going to put on for DEF CON that will now go uh, virtual. And um, so he had a pair of pants too and so we just we just did this thing i you know i i posted a picture on twitter with the red pants but look i mean really the 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 core um uh message here is that you know we're not you know we're not your father's uh government agency uh we're a little bit different we're a little bit more open um trying to be uh somewhere that that folks want to come to have fun to do a mission that's important uh and it's not a stuffy agency so uh, that that you know that's kind of a, it all wrapped up in a you know a, a two minute nutshell. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that it has a life of its own now. I have <laughs> um, I have this silly little dinosaur that I travel the uh, the world with when I do speaking engagements named Cyber, and Cyber is much more popular on Twitter than I am, by the way. <laughs> so yeah. Well, same thing goes with like our war on pineapple campaign on disinfo, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but. You know, that I get more tweets, just random people that are out and about. Um, they see a, a Hawaiian pizza and they tag me on Twitter. And it's just kind of the point where, like, I can't respond to everything. Yeah, I've had to, you know, I've had to take a personal pass on that campaign because I am very pro pineapple on pizza. It's, it's one of my stands. So. so so that but there, you know, there's a part of this for you, too. You can be an agitator. You can you can be part of driving driving the, uh, the the disinfo campaign. So let's uh yeah let's move into a little bit of critical infrastructure. Um one of the things we we saw you know with with COVID unfortunately is attacks on healthcare organizations. Um and one of the things we're seeing with the unrest we're we're seeing in the U.S. right at this moment is a lot of DDoS attacks um, on entities um, that are taking, it, it, it's pretty um, neutral. They're taking one side or the other and they're being attacked. Can you just talk a little bit about two, two things and I'll leave it open-ended to, to give you some space to talk. One, how you think about truly critical infrastructure. So, you know, the, the systems that, that keep the country going every day. And then also that partnership with the private sector, um, the, the guidance and advice you're giving healthcare organizations or, or private companies when it comes to things like these DDoS attacks we're starting to see. Yeah, so 
Um, really briefly on the kind of top line critical infrastructure piece, and I do want to come back to just the current events uh, in, in a little bit, but um, critical infrastructure in general, we looked at it through a lens of 16 different sectors. And really more than anything, those are just uh, artificial economic um, bucketings of, of organizations, but you can't you know, you can't make any real uh, qualitative or quantitative risk assessments against, you know, what's more critical, the banking and finance sector or the food and agriculture sector. It just doesn't work like that. They're, they're, it's too much of a monolithic approach. So about a year and a half ago, we we stepped back a little bit and tried to take more of a systemic risk approach and, and break these sectors down into actually the functions and the services that they provide and which helps us move away from whether it's this bank or this meatpacking company uh, and more about what are the things that they do that are so critically important um, and so uh, about april last year we released the national critical function set which took a functional approach a systemic risk approach to understanding how the nation nation's nation's economy works and if you think about government um, government has mission essential functions um, and uh, mission critical functions that for continuity of government, and continuity of operations, just like any business, like you already talked about, um, how do you get those business critical functions back up and running? We, we had never really taken that same approach with the economy in general. And if certain functions were degraded, there'd be national security, economic security or public health and safety impacts. So we pushed this out and it put us in a position as uh, particularly as COVID started, um, where we were able to immediately distill down, frankly, over the course of about 24 to 36 hours, those critical functions that needed to continue on right now, um, that, uh, that, that as governors were implementing stay at home and shelter in place orders, that they needed to consider having exemptions or exceptions for essential businesses and essential workers. So that's why back in mid-March, we released our essential critical infrastructure workers list, um, had a whole bunch of uh, folks on there, including um, data center employees and IT security and cybersecurity responders. Um, but it was really trying to get to the bottom of, you know, what do we need to have still up and running right now? And people need to be able to access job sites. And it Brookings Institute did a study and it said it, it actually reflected about 36 to 42, depending on how you looked at it, percent of the workforce, um, which which is both kind of maybe too much and maybe not enough. Uh, but it does show just how uh, interdependent our uh, economy is just in time delivery. Uh, when you think about what it takes to get a, um, a loaf of bread or a pack of ground beef um, from farm to shelf, um, it, it takes a whole bunch of different organizations and businesses. Uh, at one point, um, I think about 42 states had instituted some kind of stay-at-home order, and of that, about 35 or 36 used the, the critical infrastructure workers list. So we think we've, we've got something here, uh, and we're going to put it into our toolkit for whether it's a hurricane, an earthquake, or wildfire. Um, we, we think we've got something that we can continue to get, keep these things up and running. On the, on the COVID piece specifically, though, um, on cybersecurity, um, we immediately worked with HHS um, and the Health ISAC to get an understanding of really who those businesses, who those labs, who those research organizations are that are so critical to the COVID response, whether they're testing, vaccines, therapeutics, uh, actually hospitals and healthcare organizations, or uh, manufacturers of PPE. So we got a good list together. Uh, we approached them and said, look, we can do certain things to help you out. 
uh, and we can be, you know, uh, kind of your, your, you know, looking over over your shoulder to make sure things are uh, you're secure and the bad guys aren't out there. Because, you know, if I'm a ransomware actor, just like the elections, frankly, you know, uh, there's there's a great incentive for bad guys to target things if, uh, from a financial perspective in COVID response as well as in elections. So just wanted to make sure that we had uh, a little extra support over these organizations. And lastly, on your your DDoS piece, yeah, Minneapolis. Uh, police department had an issue last week. Um, so we've been pushing some guidance out. We've got some services, uh, but but ultimately this is, uh, you know, just making sure you got the right uh, protections in place between a good CDN uh, support, a uh, good firewall uh, and other uh, perimeter security measures. Um, and they were able to take on um, that one last week pretty quickly, just uh, black hole in the traffic, uh, but but this is we're issuing a issuing a bunch of guidance just like we did during COVID, just on telework in general, uh, issuing uh, good guidance out to our state and local partners to make sure they can stay up and running because you know no matter what your feelings are about the police uh, uh, departments across the country right now, you still need to be able to do take 911 calls, do computer um, aided dispatch. People are still having heart attacks. There's still other sorts of uh, uh, activities going on out there, so we need to make sure that. Uh, those those folks are up and running. Absolutely, no doubt. I mean, it's life safety, critical systems um, type work is, you know, how, how they've been classified, right? So let, let's talk a little bit about disinformation since, since you since you mentioned it and how, um, and, and I, I tend to talk about it, um, I tend to talk about misinformation too, but let's 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 focus on and truly what is what is your definition of disinformation and, and the types of things that, that the agency is doing to really um, make not just the public aware, but to, to make you know organizations aware if, if they're targeted and and any help and guidance that, you, that you're providing and what you're seeing in the landscape right now. Yeah, so I mean, you, you it's interesting. You um, use a couple of different words there: disinformation, misinformation. There's also malinformation, um, but then there's just people amplifying division that exists, and it's legitimate information that's just getting spun up. So we look at this whole kind of influence space um, with a supply and demand side analysis almost. And what I mean is there's a supply, the bad guys are pushing information. Uh, and we saw it in 2016, we've seen you know Russia do it, we've seen Iran do it, we've seen China do it, we've seen uh, North Korea, we've seen a whole bunch of actors doing it. And frankly, it's a, it's a really easy low barrier to entry and almost, you know, low risk um, technique in, in your blended or your, your hybrid warfare uh, toolkit. Um, and so again, from a supply side, uh, that is more on the FBI, the Department of Defense Intelligence community to go kind of disrupt, understand what the bad guys are doing and get out in front of them and just push down on the supply side. We're working more on the demand side. And what that really means is, is helping educate. Um, folks on um, a how these campaigns how disinformation and influence campaigns work and so I talked about the pineapple pizza or the war on pineapple uh, a little bit earlier but you know that is um, uh, we broke down the the five key uh, activities that um, that we particularly seen the Russians use in 16 um, and just try to educate but we put it with war on pineapple we put it in a non-controversial space whether you like pineapple on your pizza or not uh, because there's, you know, we wanted it to be engaging and approachable and not immediately setting folks off uh, and have great uptake, I think. Um, 
so so that's part of it again it's educating but also particularly when we think about elections is working with our state and local partners um to point people to the right place to get information that they need on voting for instance you know know what the requirements are for voting if you need to have an id id know where you're supposed to vote know what the registration you know make sure you're registered have a plan really more than anything just have a plan for voting put a little put a little uh put a few calories into getting your your uh, uh voting plan in place um and that's trusted info 2020 and that's our friends at the national association of secretaries of state and the national association of Sec uh, state election directors kicked that off and fully supported go to the folks that have the information uh the state election officials are the ones you're going to get uh, your best info um so really again just educating pointing people to valid um, legitimate information and get people to kind of think before they like think before they share think before they click I think that's that's fantastic. And to your point about pineapple and pizza, it is a fairly lightweight, neutral place for you to drive some fun. And and I think that's what's going to help people, right? Pay attention. They get so much information at them. If you can find something that's that's not really divisive, and a place that that people can take a lightweight approach, it's a great approach. And you've said you've had so much positive response to it, right? And, and, you know, to a certain extent, we're like, we caught lightning in a bottle. So how do we, you know, what's the next pineapple pizza campaign? Still working on a few things. You know, we talk a lot about nation states and we, we, we continually talk about nation states, but we're seeing a, and have seen over, you know, it's not new, but I've seen over the past few years, a pretty substantial rise in cybercrime groups, yep. whether it's related to ransomware or whether it's related to some type of monetary attack, typically monetization of, of something. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on that? Uh, I, this is my favorite topic and going on six to nine months now. And I got to, I got to give a lot of credit, honestly, um, to Jessica Payne, uh, at Microsoft. Um, she had a tweet last summer, I think, or maybe it was last spring that just rocked my world. Um, it was basically, if you can cover down on TrickBot and Emotet, then you're going to close out avenues of attack for the majority of the advanced persistent threat. So I immediately bake that into our strategy. And the reason that's important is because when we talk about our, um, when we talk to our state and local election officials in particular, but state and local uh, government in general, and, and, and when, the, when the narrative is always, you know, Russia, 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 China, 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 they don't feel that. They don't necessarily see that. It's hard for them to determine what the actor is that's bouncing off their networks or in their networks. But when you talk about ransomware, when you talk about criminal groups that are locking up systems and saying, hey, pay me this, they've all had that experience. The average American, uh, in, to some extent, almost every single American has been impacted by ransomware. They've lost a local service because of ransomware. They've lost a, a healthcare service, whatever it is. You, it's just much more relatable. It's much more um, approachable. So, so we really did a hard, hard pivot to focusing on ransomware. So last summer, um, we uh, we launched an initiative, the Voter Registration Database Ransomware Initiative, where we had determined over um, uh, some risk analysis that really the the place that we need to be concerned about and and focus our attention on in, in the voting process. Uh, are those highly centralized, highly networked systems. And that that t tends to be your voter registration database. Uh, and, and man, when you do a little threat modeling, a little red teaming, again, going back to that financial incentive that I talked about with COVID response, 
you could you could see clearly that a ransomware actor might look at a voter registration database over the summer of 2020 and say, hey, these are pretty important. I bet if I go lock one up and ask for a couple million, they'll probably pay it because they don't have any other uh, other avenues. And by law, the, co the, the, the vote must go on. So we put a lot of attention, worked with, with you guys, worked with the sector coordinating council on elections uh, to really get our arms around the problem and help uh, secure these, these machines uh, a lot more. And then just in general on ransomware, uh, I, you know, even in the federal government and, and well, the, between the federal government and the cyber threat intelligence community, um, I, I think there is kind of a fetish or a, a, a preference to go deal with those APTs. But, but again, the average American, the average attacker is, is a ransomware crew. So trying to drive more attention, more focus, more resources into the ransomware space. And then think about, all right, first order of business, we got to defend better. But then the second piece is, how do we really disrupt the economics of cybercrime, disrupt the economics of, of ransomware? And, and what is that going to entail? Is it going to um, mean that, that it's illegal to pay ransom? I, you know, that's a question for Congress, uh, but it's a worthwhile public policy question. I don't want to re-victimize the victim, but I think we need to have that conversation. How do you drive the numbers the wrong way so the adversary moves on to something else? And lastly, you got to impose costs. You got to go take these folks down. Uh, whether it's uh, you know indictments and arresting them, or it's just taking them offline uh, and using you know certain other authorities that the federal government has, we've got to be able to disrupt the bad guys and impose some costs there. Quite fair. Any uh, any last thoughts you want to leave us with? Yeah, I, I mean I think it's uh, I think we 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 should probably talk a little bit about what's going on in the world right now, and um, you know in infosec in particular, diversity. Um, is uh, it's it's nowhere near where it needs to be. I look at my leadership team and, and I don't see enough uh, diversity. I look at my team in general. Um, we, we've got to do better. Um, so I send a note out to across the agency uh, Wednesday morning that that didn't say we're, I'm going to solve anything, but I understand that, that these are tough times, that everyone's struggling, um, that I might have had advantages in my life and everybody's that, that others didn't have. Um, but, but we're in, you know, we're a team, we're going to get through this one together. Uh, I need to hear the perspectives and views of the folks on my team and the folks that are out there. And we just, is in general, we got to be better. We got to do better. Um, cause the only way we're going to get through all of this, whether it's COVID or just, uh, moving forward as a, as a country is, is together. So, uh, you know, InfoSec is our world. Um, we know that it's got some some tough spots and some tricky spots. It can be kind of toxic or really toxic, frankly, at times. Uh, and and that's just one example. We we've got to be better as a community, as a team, um, uh, if we're going to get through to the other side of this. Yeah, and I'll I'll you know I'll echo that. As you know, I'm, I've always been a, a, a very big advocate. I'm having been a a woman in tech for for 30 plus years now, but also. Um, of other communities that are that are less represented, right? And right now, it's the focus is on the black community, and the fact that they're just not represented um, equally in infosec um, is a problem. And you know, I'll tell you that my perspective, because I said this to, um, I've been reaching out to some some folks, and candidly, you know, I I feel responsible as as a as a as a you know white woman who was born and raised in this country and has worked in tech over 30 years, I haven't done enough. 
and that's where it has to start, right? It's, it's great to talk about it and it's great to take little initiatives or at the end of the day, if, if it's gonna take people like me and you know folks in, in leadership positions that have influence to actually take concrete actions. And I, I will tell you, as I sit here today, I'm not exactly sure what those concrete actions are beyond what I've done, but I'm digging in to figure that out. And I would encourage everyone in InfoSec and candidly outside of InfoSec to, to look at yourself first um, and do the things like you did. You know, thanks for thanks for giving me the opportunity to air that. I, I just th these are these are challenging times, no question about it. Thank you for your candor and your transparency, and and for joining Afternoon Cyber Tea. I I'm sure our listeners really appreciated this episode, and you gave them some tangible things. We always like to leave the audience with tangible things, and thank you for for being willing to be vulnerable and open, also about the issues we face with diversity. I really appreciate it. So only th only way we're going to get through this one, Ann. Thank you uh, for the opportunity. I selected Director Krebs to join the show because so much is going on in the world today, right? We're in a major election cycle in the United States, so I wanted to talk a bit about election security. We've also in the middle of a global pandemic and in the middle of um, racial unrest in the United States. All of those things have impacts on cybersecurity, and I knew he would have excellent perspective. My my biggest takeaway from the interview with Director Krebs is is really how how large and expansive the job the job is that he does and the job is that his team does. If you think about everything they're they're trying to address and deal with, it's just a almost impossible job. But their ability to provide the the right information to the right audiences, right to the right cohorts at the right time, um, is is incredible. And and he's executed very well in this role. And, and you could hear it, um, his depth of knowledge and his ability to to synthesize what the important issues are and really try to provide the right information. It's just exceptional. Thank you very much for giving us a sense of where things stand um, on such timely issues, uh, Director Krebs. I really appreciate you making the time to uh, join our show today. I want to thank our audience also for listening in and join us again next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.